Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 15. Well, we've talked about him several times in the past, but today we finally get to meet Brigadier Etienne Gérard of the Hussar of Conflans in two of his exploits, namely how the Brigadier held the King and how the King held the Brigadier. And here's Paul to introduce the stories. How the Brigadier held the King. It is July the 1st, 1810, and Colonel Etienne Gérard of the French Third Hussars is recuperating from a lance wound to his ankle in the Spanish village of Alamo. He is desperate to be back in the field with his regiment, who are quartered 40 miles away in Pastores, and involved in operations around the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo. All he needs is a horse, but none is to be found. His prayers are answered by a kindly old Spanish priest, who offers Gérard passage across the mountains in a rickety old diligence but the priest is not all he appears to be, and Gerard finds himself the prisoner of a unit of Spanish guerrillas, led by the notorious and bloodthirsty marauder known as El Cuchillo. Yet just as Gerard is stealing himself to face an horrendous death, salvation appears in an unlikely form. How the King Held the Brigadier Following his capture in Spain, Gerard is held in Dartmoor prison, as he has refused to grant his parole, and consequently cannot be quartered upon an English family. Once behind the grim walls, he thinks only of escaping, which, against the odds, he does. Once free, however, he has to contend with the moor, his pursuers, and some curious encounters with the locals. And then fate intervenes with an ironic twist. (laughs) (laughs) So two linked stories there to introduce Brigadier Gerard to the podcast. Now, we've spoken about Conan Doyle and his fascination with the Napoleonic era a few times in the podcast. Uh, On episode 10, we talked about a straggler of 15, and Waterloo. And on episode 12, we had a conversation with Cliff Goldfarb about all things Gerard and Napoleon. Um, But just to quickly recap, before Conan Doyle started work on the Brigadier Gerard stories, he'd already um, written a number of Napoleonic pieces. There was A Straggler of 15, the short story in 1891, which he adapted into the play Waterloo in 1892. And he also wrote a short serialized novel, The Great Shadow, uh, which came out towards the end of 1892 as well. And these stories are important forerunners because by the time Conan Doyle had reached Gerard, he was expert in the Napoleonic era. Having dealt with the heavy historical lifting in other tales, he was now free from that burden of historical accuracy and could have more fun with the pieces. And they were, as Hesketh Pearson noted, flights of fancy for Conan Doyle. They were his great entertainments set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic era. And the two stories that we're focusing on here today uh, were the second and the third 
Gerard stories to be written. The first, the Medal of Brigadier Gerard, was written uh, sometime before a series was ever devised. Conan Doyle said he began writing the series of Gerard stories in Davos over the winter of 1893-4, although it's highly unlikely that that was the case. He may well have started on the idea of Gerard, uh, but he didn't really decide on a series of Gerard stories until a full 12 months later. And there's a difference of opinion over when the Medal of Brigadier Gerard was written. One school of thought has it that it was written in Britain in uh, the early part of 1894. Uh, Another is that uh, it was actually written in the latter half of 1894 when Conan Doyle was on a lecture tour of North America. Whatever the truth, we know that uh, he certainly read the Medal of Brigadier Gerard to audiences in North America and received extremely positive feedback, most notably from Sam McClure, the founder and editor of McClure's magazine. McClure's magazine was actually in some financial difficulty towards the end of 1894, and Conan Doyle stumped up a thousand pounds to invest in the company. And it was a very sound investment because McClure's uh, actually doubled its circulation on, perhaps not coincidentally, uh, a serialized feature on Napoleon by Ida Tarbell, which led to McClure's growing enormously in circulation and became one of the most uh, successful American periodicals of its day. So McClure was clearly very interested in Napoleon and very receptive to Conan Doyle's uh, first Gerard story and may well have encouraged him to think more about writing other Gerard tales. As it happened, the Medal of Brigadier Gerard didn't appear in McClure's magazine. Instead, Conan Doyle wrote a related uh, Napoleonic story for McClure, which was entitled A Foreign Office Romance, which is often seen as one of the um, apocrypha of Gerard. It's a, a story that really sets up the framing device of the elderly Frenchman telling tales of his past. Whatever the case of the writing of the Medal of Brigadier Gerard, he'd certainly decided on a series by the end of 1894. On the 18th of December, he wrote to Arthur Waugh from the Reform Club saying that he was going to write a series and offer the stories to the Strand for £250 each. Conan Doyle then set off for Switzerland for a second time, and it was there that he uh, he wrote the Gerard stories that became what were known as the, the exploits of Brigadier Gerard. Uh, we know that at least five of the eight tales of the exploits were written from the Hotel Belvedere in Davos Platz in Switzerland, uh, with various dates between January and May 1895. The first one, uh, How the Brigadier Held the King, was completed by the 2nd of January, and the second, How the King Held the Brigadier, by the 24th of January, which just goes to show the remarkable speed at which Conan Doyle was able to, to write these stories. Uh, we know that How the King Held the Brigadier was certainly written by the 24th because there is a letter between Conan Doyle and George Nunes in which Conan Doyle um, wishes the new series to be known as The Exploits, um, whereas Nunes is keen on uh, The Adventures, but Conan Doyle is rather more dismissive, having just released The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes a few years previously. The Gerard stories were then uh, published in The Strand between April and September 1895 with the final of the exploits, uh, how the brigadier played for a kingdom, appearing a little later in December 1895. And the stories were collected as a volume entitled The Exploits of Brigadier Gerard, which came out in mid-February 1896. And in the book edition, the stories are compiled in chronological order, with the medal of Brigadier Gerard renamed How the Brigadier Won His Medal, um, thus beginning the rather long and convoluted story (laughs) of the different uh, changes to titles and the running order of the uh, Gerard stories themselves. 
And the stories are very much part of a revival of interest in the Napoleonic era more more broadly. Yeah, this sort of time from from the mid to to late eighteen eighties uh, through into the early twentieth century, there's there's a real explosion of interest in in the Napoleonic era. Uh, you've got in eighteen ninety the seventy fifth anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo, and then the eightieth anniversary in eighteen ninety five. Uh, and people are also realising that the last of the veterans are dying off mm. uh, at this time as well. So there's, there's this kind of recognition of this. This is uh, an era which is is fast disappearing uh, from from living history. And and there's a there's a whole raft of of published works uh, which, which come out at the time. I mean, Conan Doyle is producing most of his fictional Napoleonic works uh, in the 1890s, but there's a great raft of of uh, non-fiction works as well, which which come out to feed this interest. Uh, I'm I'm thinking, uh, for instance, of of uh, books like uh, E.L.S. Horsburgh's study of uh, Waterloo: A Narrative and a Criticism, which is published in 1895. Mm. Uh, there's a fifth edition of, of William Seiborn's classic study of Waterloo, which comes out in 1900. Uh, a new edition of J.G. Lockhart's study of Napoleon is published in 1897. J.R. Seeley publishes A Life of Napoleon in 1886. Uh, and then there's a great two-volume Life of Napoleon by John Holland Rose in mm-hmm. 1901. These, these are all catching on to this. Um, and then perhaps very significantly for Conan Doyle, Henry Husset, the French historian, writes mm-hmm. a, a, a three-volume history of Waterloo, which is translated into English uh, from its 31st French edition wow. um, in, in 1900. And Conan Doyle rated Husset's work very highly, saying of it in Through the Magic Door, Husset's book is my favourite. Taken from the French point of view, it gets the actions of the Allies in truer perspective than any English or German account can do. So he, he really recommends this this work. Um, but also, as well as the historians, there's also a, a great number of, of, of Napoleonic memoirs come out at this time. There's, there's um, uh, one of the ones which Conan Doyle used again was, was Wellington's Men, which was a collection of, of British memoirs put together by, uh, by the historian Fitchett, uh, which came out in 1900. But there's also the French memoirs. So you, you've got translations of um, de Marbeau's memoirs come out in 1892. Coignet's memoirs in 1897, uh, Bagone in 1899. These are all military mm. memoirs. Mm. Um, but then there's also uh, the memoirs of people who worked in the uh, in the, the civil as well as the military service. Um, think of people like de Borien. His memoirs are translated in 1894. Uh, and de Segur. And Doyle used all of these as, as source books for his own Napoleonic fictions. Yes, and he's very open and explicit about that. In the preface to the author's edition of the Gerard Tales, he says, uh, readers of Marbeau, de Gonville, um, Coignet, de Fezenac, uh, Bourgogne, and other French soldiers who've recorded their reminiscences of the Napoleonic campaigns will recognize the fountain from which I've drawn the adventures of Etienne Gerard. Um, and it's probably, of all of them, Marcelin de Marbeau uh, is probably the greatest single inspiration, certainly, um, that's what uh, Conan Doyle says in Memories and Adventures when he reminisces on the uh, writing of the Gerard stories in, in Davos. He says, Whilst there I began the Brigadier Gerard series of stories founded largely upon that great book, The Memoirs of General Marbeau. This entailed a great deal of research into Napoleonic days, and my military detail was, I think, very accurate. 
so much so that I had a warm letter of appreciation from Archibald Forbes, the, the famous war correspondent, who was himself a great Napoleonic and military student. And Forbes is just one of a number of people who were fascinated by Napoleon and the Napoleonic era. Um, the other great source of inspiration for Conan Doyle is uh, one of his great literary heroes, George Meredith. And it's suggested that Meredith uh, was the individual who who recommended Marbo's memoirs to Conan Doyle, and that's the copy. It's believed that's the copy that he took with him to Davos to uh, uh, to to read and to uh, to draw from. And there is some decent evidence that Conan Doyle borrowed directly from Marbo. There's one moment in How the Brigadier Held the King where Gerard is captured by a fantastic character, the Bart, who we, who will no doubt come on to in a, in a bit. But uh, Gerard doesn't give parole, and he uh, uh, is therefore entitled to escape. Um, but being the generous and chivalric character that he is, he decides he's going to have a conversation with the Bart about this, and instead uh, they decide to play cards for his freedom. But this is very reminiscent, as Hesketh Pearson pointed out, of a, of a scene in Marbo's memoirs where Marbo has captured, I think it's a Polish uh, cavalry officer, and uh, again, the Polish cavalry officer hasn't given parole and uh, uh, Marbo has trusted him with his life and uh, the Polish cavalry officer takes a sword swipes at Marbo Marbo's saddle comes loose and he rolls to the underside of his horse as the Polish cavalry officer escapes but there's echoes of uh, Marbo and other instances from the other memoirs littered throughout the um, uh, the Gerard stories they were clearly a great source of inspiration for Conan Doyle Marbo is, is quite definitely the, 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 the number one source of inspiration, but Gerard is, is, is so much more, of course, than that. And it's all the mm. other Napoleonic memoirs and, and, and getting those French attitudes or, or the sort of what are seen as French attitudes taken from these, these books. But Gerard is very, very much taken from, from other sources as well, uh, including fictional sources. Mm. Um, it's very much, a, uh, he, he's, a, he's a, a, an Alexandre Dumas character, uh, as well as being a, a really believable historical character. And it's, it's particularly interesting uh, when the, there's a, a biography of, of Marbo appears in English in 1946, written by Vivian Ferrers, who, who wrote the book while he was in a German prison camp. Um, but he actually calls this biography of Marbo the Brigadier. Oh, interesting. Of the influence of Marbo on, on, on Gerard. So just uh, this, this crossover between fact and fiction and how easily they become mixed up. Mm. It, 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 it's just shown by, by, by this example. Mm. Also, when you're thinking about Dumas, the other, the other connection there is that uh, D'Artagnan is a Gascon and uh, Gerard is a Gascon as well. He's another of a, uh, from a great long line of uh, dramatic Frenchmen who appear throughout literature. Mm, he's Gascon swashbucklers. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's interesting that you raise there about the Frenchness of uh, Gerard because that's the heart of the character. But you know, it's not an offensive stereotype, this at all. It's a very affectionate uh, stereotype. And um, uh, Conan Doyle plays heavily in both of these stories on the, the differences between the phlegmatic English character and the um, more flamboyant French character. But it's always in a very um, affectionate way. Uh, there was a, a great commentary on this from uh, John Dixon Carr, in his uh, biography of Condor, where he says, uh, the brigadier is truly French, as French as Marbo, as French as Coignet, as French as Gougal. Not a word or a gesture is false. 
the attitudes he strikes, which so annoy his English foes and amuse us who read, are perfectly sincere. He is life and soul in the Grande Armée. His own throat nearly bursts with the war whoop of Vive l'Empereur, and his own hits at English character are fully as good as anything they ever say about him. Etienne Gérard makes a fool only of himself. He never makes a fool of France or the French. That is the triumph both of the brigadier and of Conan Doyle. I think that really sums up very nicely that the mm-hmm. the, the affection Conan Doyle clearly has for the French. And you mentioned actually in, a, in the podcast with Cliff that it's interesting that Conan Doyle chooses as his great hero from this period a Frenchman as opposed to uh, an Englishman. Yes, so you could look at the uh, the wars in a different perspective. And, and mm. again, with this whole late 19th century Napoleonic nostalgia, uh, because there's the, the distance is there now that, that we can look at with Napoleon isn't an actual threat anymore. Mm. And this is this ability to look at those the, the wars in a, in a different way and, and admire the other side as, as, as well. Mm. And I, I think while we're on this sort of subject, it, it, it is worth pointing out as well that, that, that Conan Doyle you know, was, was very much um, a, a Francophile mm. and brought up um, to read French by his mother, who was, was similarly uh, disposed towards the French. I mean, he, he talks of her reading the, uh, the Revue des Deux Mondes and him <laughs> being brought up on, on, on this as a background. So he, he can look with, with, with great sympathy uh, on on the, the French side in the Napoleonic Wars, and of, of course he could read French, so he he didn't have to wait for the translations no. of a lot of these memoirs. He could read them in the original. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The other thing about Conan Doyle's um, depiction of Gerard, I think, is that for all Gerard is this exaggeration uh, in in a whole range of different ways. He's also quite plausible. He's also uh, a, a tremendous optimist. There's a wonderful moment in the first of the two stories we're looking at where he uh, he's really backed into a corner. And he says, um, one lesson which I've learned in my roaming life, my friends, is never to call anything a misfortune until you've seen the end of it. Is not every hour a fresh point of view? There's this sort of endless optimism. And he lives in the moment so much. Uh, and that's what gives the pacing and the storytelling such immense uh, movement and speed. Um, the other thing about Gerard is that uh, as much as he's often talked about as being this uh, entertain, entertaining character, very light character, he's also an incredibly good soldier. He's very brave. He's very impulsive. He's incredibly capable. And so he actually comes across as being strangely believable. For all it's a heightened reality, he comes across as being strangely believable because he's motivated by those principles of of patriotism and of chivalric ideals and pride, which makes him prone to folly, but also makes him an enchanting character in his own way. And and this is also why he, the framing device works so well as well, mm. as well because after the wars, he's adrift. Yeah. It's as you say in the, in the time of the wars, he lives in the moment, and it, it feels to him like the the you know, the empire will go on forever. How could it ever end when it's led by this 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 wonderful man Napoleon? Mm-hmm. And when it is all over, Gerard, far from living in the moment, then lives in the past. He does, and there's tremendous pathos from all those moments as well. And that's one of the that's the other great thing about the Gerard stories, I think, is the the tonal shifts often within the space of a single short story. But they're always rooted in a historical reality. And there's a sense in which Conan Doyle was trying to do something slightly different with Gerard. While he was writing the Gerard stories in Davos in Switzerland, he wrote to James Payne uh, and said, uh, 
It's a funny thing that our idea of an historical novel is always something at or before the Jacobite times, simply because that was Scott's idea of one. We forget that a longer interval separates us now from Napoleon than separated Scott from Prince Charlie. No attempt has been made to idealise and turn into fiction Napoleon, Ney, Murat and all those wonderful fellows. Erkman Chatrion gives a narrative of campaigns from a peasant's point of view, but there's no character drawing of the big men. And you do get the fleeting characters of the marshals and little pen portraits of key historical figures littered throughout the um, uh, Gerard stories. And there's a notable cameo at the end of How the Brigadier Held the King, which we'll probably come on to as well. And that nicely brings us to the first of the two short stories that we're looking at today, How the Brigadier Held the King, which is one of, I think, five of the Gerard stories that is set in Spain and uh, during the uh, the Peninsular War. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the Peninsular War, as its name may suggest, uh, took place on the, the Iberian Peninsula and broke out um, in November 1807 when the Portuguese refused to impose Napoleon's blockade on trading with 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 England um so Napoleon sent General Junot in uh, to try and sort the Portuguese out um through this movement uh, to, to to simplify it grossly the French got sucked into Spanish politics mm. Napoleon found himself embroiled in in Spanish um political intrigues as well as coming to the decision that that he would actually need to take over the the Iberian Peninsula himself, mm. um, and he, he tried to impose his own brother Joseph as, as King of Spain. The war itself became terribly bogged down. Um, there were there were elements of of uh, conventional warfare, um, but what Napoleon encountered in Spain was the the the, the growth of, of guerrilla warfare, which is where the you know, the phrase first comes about, uh, and found himself fighting a, a people's war. Mm. Um, and and the whole thing just just bogged the French army down. Napoleon himself was actually only involved in Spain for seventy seven days. Mm. Uh, he left most of the running of the campaign to his marshals, um, with greater or lesser success. <laughs> yes, but the, um, the 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 particular time of the the, the setting of, of this story uh, is is eighteen ten during the another uh, attempted invasion of Portugal by the French. Uh, and Gerard and his regiment find themselves uh, in, involved in the, the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo, which was a strategically important fortress on the River Agueda, uh, which guarded an exit of the northern corridor which linked Spain and Portugal. Mm. Uh, to be blockaded by Marshal Ney since February 1810, and then was invested and besieged from late May. Um, it was held by a, a, a Spanish garrison of only five to 6,500 men, commanded by Don Andres Haresti. Um, and it finally fell on the uh, the 9th of July when French engineers blew a, a breach in, in the defences. Mm. But uh, Gerard's own troops were involved not in the siege itself, but in, in operations around the siege. As would have been the case for Hussars, because that's that's their, their primary role. Uh, yes, it's, uh, uh, scouting and skirmishing. Mm. And around that siege, uh, there is this incredibly brutal uh, guerrilla war going on and it's into the hands of a band of Spanish guerrillas that that Gerard falls. Yes, it's a particularly brutal band that that <laughs> um, he's actually captured by and and 
the, the, the whole guerrilla war in, in Spain is itself a, a, a pretty complicated picture. Mm. You would have bands of different sizes. Uh, some of them were uniform. Some of them were, were semi-regular. Some of them were just out-and-out bandits who, who mm. took advantage of, of the chaos around them uh, to enrich themselves and, and just enjoy themselves with a, with a bit of, of, of mayhem and, mm. and disguise their own criminal tendencies behind a, a mask of patriotism. It's by one of these latter bands that, that Gerard is captured and uh, they're headed by a, a, a particularly notorious character who goes under the, uh, the name of El Cuchillo, the knife. Um, <laughs> But again, to show the, uh, the, the the whole complexity uh, of of this uh, of this war, El Cuchillo has this bloodthirsty reputation. Where when Gerard meets him face to face, he describes him: his face was bluff and broad and bland, with ruddy cheeks and comfortable little tufts of side whiskers, which gave him the appearance of a well-to-do grocer of the Rue Saint Antoine. He had not any of those flaring sashes or gleaming weapons which distinguished his followers, but on the contrary, he wore a good broadcloth coat, like a respectable father of a family, and save for his brown leggings, there was nothing to indicate a life among the mountains. Uh, and he's also, um, he's also a poet. Yes. Um, we, we don't know really, because it's Gerard telling the story, we don't know really whether he's a good or a bad poet, but um, <laughs> Gerard indicates to him that he's a bad poet simply to wind him up. Yes, indeed. Um, and that's a wonderful pen portrait of El Cuchillo, isn't it? I mean, mm. you know, Conan Doyle is so good at, at just describing somebody in a handful of sentences. And certainly the character had a great influence on uh, at least one other reader, and that was George Bernard Shaw, because um, in his play Man and Superman, he uh, he has a character who is based directly on the character of El Cuchillo from How the Brigadier Held the King. He wrote in the preface to Man and Superman, I should make formal acknowledgement to the authors whom I have pillaged in the following pages, if I could recollect them all. The theft of the brigand poetaster from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is deliberate. And, and if the character himself sounds like um, a, a bit, a bit of almost of a, of, a, of a cartoon character, especially with his name, the El mm. Cuchillo, uh, there are plenty of real life owls that, that <laughs> um, were found amongst the the, uh, the guerrilla bands uh, in the Peninsular War. Most of whom were actually named after the, after their leaders. Um, so, for example, you you have uh, El Marquisito, the little Marquis, El Empecinado, the obstinate. El Estudiante, the student, El Pasto, the shepherd, and one I particularly like, El Manco, one arm. <laughs> so so the, these these characters, real life, but they, they're also almost straight out of the pages of early to mid 19th century melodrama. Yeah. Uh, although the, this this may all sound very very sort of stagey and and melodramatic, it mustn't be forgotten that the. the the setting of the the story itself it was in it is a, a very brutal insurgent war mm. um, which Napoleon hadn't encountered before. He was used to fighting uh, conventional battles, yes, uh, and he would encounter this again uh, when he invaded uh, Russia in eighteen twelve. Um, and and throughout the nineteenth century, this this type of warfare will become more and more if not the norm, certainly a part of, of warfare as we ha get a succession of, of wars of national liberation mm. uh, throughout the century. Um, and, and the French who had experienced this at the hands of, of the Spanish and, and the Russians in the Napoleonic Wars 
actually would turn to these tactics themselves in in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71 uh, in the form of their own um, semi-regular units, the Front Terreur, mm. who um, terrorized the Prussian forces who invaded France in 1870. And, and they also caught Conan Doyle's imagination as he wrote another gothic-themed historical story around this uh, uh, in 1894 called The uh, the Lord of Chateau Noir. Yeah, yeah, The Lord of Chateau Noir. And the brutality of the conflict really allows Conan Doyle to play with his love of the gothic once again. Yes, you get this even beginning as, as, as Gerard is led into the um, the guerrilla's mountain hideaway. Even. A narrow pathway led through the brambles to a deep grotto in the side of the cliff. The sun was already setting outside, and in the cave itself it would have been quite dark, but for a pair of torches which blazed from a socket on either side. So you're already getting, getting this, mm. again, this, this kind of 19th century stage set up. Of, of this is the the robber's hideaway. It's, mm. it's the kind of thing Gilbert and Sullivan spoofed in the Pirates of Penzance. Mm. Talking of the uh, the uh, Victorian melodramatic stage, uh, the, there's there's a what appears to be a direct reference to uh, one of the favourite uh, popular plays of the era when um, Gerard is is talking about the uh, the guerrilla band uh, and El Cuchillo. He laughed as he spoke. And at the sight of it, the whole 40 of them laughed also, which is a, a pretty <laughs> clear reference to, to everyone's favourite pantomime, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. <laughs> and then similarly, you've got as, as, as Gerard is, is led out to, uh, to be executed by the guerrillas. It was quite dark when we came out and the moon was shining very clearly in the heavens. The brigands had lighted a great fire of the dried branches of the fir trees, not, of course, for warmth, since the night was already very sultry, but to cook their evening meal. A huge copper pot hung over the blaze, and the rascals were lying all round in the yellow glare, so that the scene looked like one of those pictures which Juno stole out of out of Madrid. <laughs> so you, you've got him, again, playing with this, this kind of gothic picture book quality of the scene and 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 you almost know where he's talking about the the pictures which juno stole out of madrid um i i wonder if if conan Doyle was also thinking or one of the moonlit pictures that that, that his own father charles altamont doyle specialized in these, these kind of mm. gothic scenes yeah i mean and the other inspiration is is probably goya um uh goya's um did a series of prints between 1810 and 1820 which are, I think, collectively known as the disasters of war, um, and uh, they they're really interesting in that they start by depicting really the horrors inflicted by the French on the Spanish populace. But in the later illustrations, it's harder to really ascribe the brutality to to one side over the other. There's also a sort of schoolboyish love of the uh, uh, of the of the Gothic torture as well. The death that the brigands have in mind for Gerard is essentially to uh, to tension two trees and then to tie him to the two, <laughs> tie one leg to one and one leg to the other, and essentially split him in half. It's pretty horrible stuff. Um, and there's also a wonderful moment of dark comedy in that when uh, El Cuchillo mentions that they've already had a member of the Hussar of Conflon with them, a, a chap called Subiron. El Cuchillo consults his notes and says, ah, yes, I see we buried him upon that date. Poor lad, I cried. And how did he die? We buried him. But before you buried him, you misunderstand me, Colonel. He was not dead before we buried him. <laughs> There's a wonderful dark comedy around this as well. 
And and uh, the, the particular method of death chosen for for Subaron could also reflect Conan Doyle's love of, of Edgar Allan Poe's works, because mm. Poe was very fond of discussing premature burials. <laughs> yes, indeed. And just as the tension is reaching fever pitch, and it looks like uh, Gerard has no hope, we suddenly have the arrival of a British officer who uh, casually comes in and says, uh, well, 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 cried the young officer in sufficiently bad French, what game are you up to here? Who was that who was yelling for help? And what are you trying to do to him? This fantastic phlegmatic Englishman who uh, goes by the name of the Bart, because uh, Gerard doesn't understand that the suffix Bart is uh, short for baronet. And for all the Bart is a uh, English stereotype, uh, he still comes across as quite a plausible character. Yeah, and he's, when he stumbles upon the scene of, of, of Gerard about to be executed in this this particularly unpleasant way, his 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 English sensibilities of fair play mm. are certainly offended by by what's going on, um, and also as, as a regular soldier, he has this clear distaste for for what he will see as as a, as a group of bandits. Mm. Um, and it was this this difficult interplay between the regular forces of England and Portugal and uh, Spain as well, um, although this, the Spanish regular forces didn't perform particularly well throughout the war. Mm. Um, but the, the, the distaste of the regular soldier for the irregular and, and their understanding that there, there was this, this point where some of the guerrillas were, were out-and-out bandits uh, and the Bart has mm. pretty well summed up El Cachillo as 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 an out and out villain, hmm. um, and, and this this is, is comes across particularly well in in this story and in the, the, this group of English dragoons almost immediately takes the side of of, of the French officer who who is their nominal enemy hmm. um, and and take a dislike to this 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 group of bandits and and they help. Gerard to get away, and and in one of the, uh, the delicious irony of the story, it's it's an English sergeant who actually uh, finishes El Cuchillo's career. Yeah, and then hot on the heels of the of the the Bart's rescue of uh, Gerard, we uh, are introduced to two other historical figures of uh, rather more note. Yes, uh, two of the the leading British commanders, including the the commander in chief, uh, the Duke of Wellington, um, and General Crawford are actually stood watching Gerard and the Bart play cards in the middle of a war zone. And, um, secretly, they're probably amused, but they can't stand for this sort of behaviour. So the Bart has to be admonished like a, like a naughty schoolboy by his, his, his commander-in-chief. Uh, but it's, it's a lovely portrait of, of Wellington. And again, it, this, this whole idea of, of uh, Conan Doyle uh, and his love of historical accuracy and, and Crawford and Wellington were certainly in the area at the time. So it's mm. it's not taking characters out of their place. It It, it is, uh, with the, from the historical accuracy perspective, it, it is slightly disappointing to, to note that when when Conan Doyle describes the um, the original arrival of, of the Bart and his, his group of dragoons, he, he says of the Bart, he wore a singular coat which had once been red all over, but which was now stained to the colour of a withered oak leaf wherever the weather could reach it. His shoulder straps, however, were of golden lace, and he had a bright metal helmet upon his head, with a coquettish white plume upon one side of its crest. Um, unfortunately, at this period, the 16th Light Dragoons were certainly in Spain at this period, but their uniforms were actually, they wore dark blue jackets uh, of, the, <laughs> of the Hussar style, uh, and the helmets were black 
leather tarlatan style. So Conan Doyle has actually, he might have done this deliberately um, to point out that these are British troops. He's put them into 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 red coats. Into red as opposed to It might just be the choice mm. of a novelist. I might be being a bit unfair. <laughs> um, but yeah. Very good, very good. And on that point as well, the, um, the illustrator, William Wallen, does get uh, the Bart's uniform right in the illustrations, but unfortunately, he saddles Gerard with a with a large pair of epaulets, which would never be worn on a hussar jacket. <laughs> and there has long been this uh, confusion about Gerard's rank. Yes, um, when Conan Doyle called him Brigadier Gerard, he was intending Brigadier to be taken almost in its its British sense of of, of being. Um, a, a lower-ranking general, mm. um, whereas brigadier in the French army, so in the French cavalry, is actually corporal, which Conan Doyle certainly didn't didn't intend. Um, at, at the time of the the later Gerard stories, he has actually risen to become colonel commanding the Third Hussars, uh, but he's also uh, chef de brigade, um, which is a, a title meaning brigade major or brigade staff officer, mm. which is why, for instance, in, in the two stories set in the 1814 French campaign, he's, he's galloping around uh, carrying messages. Yeah. Um, the actual rank uh, in the British Army, brigadier, has no direct French equivalent, uh, even in General de Brigade, um, because in the French Army, General de Brigade doesn't have to command a, a brigade. It, it's it's all a, a more free-flowing title. Mm. Um, so in the in the end, I think we just have to accept Brigadier Gerard is the high-ranking French cavalry officer and yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and while Conan Doyle might be playing a little uh, fast and loose with the uh, with the regimental details, he. Uh, uh, he certainly gives Wellington probably the, the the best line of the first story in that he gets the he gets the punchline. Um, Gerard has uh, ha, ha, Gerard's card game with the Bart has been interrupted at a critical moment, and he says, "See, my lord," I cried, "I played for my freedom and I won. For as you perceive, I hold the king." For the first time, a slight smile softened his gaunt face. On the contrary, said he as he mounted his horse, "It was I who won." For as you perceive, my king holds you. Which leads us nicely into the second story, how the king held the brigadier. And this couldn't be more different in terms of tone um, from the uh, gothic horrors of the, uh, uh, of, the, of the first story to what is essentially a, a comedy story um, with plenty of dark moments sprinkled uh, across it, but really um, uh, a sort of three-part um, farce or, or comic story, the first part, being about uh, Dartmoor and the uh, escape from the prison, the second part about his encounters with a, a particularly well-drawn uh, local boxer uh, called the Bristol Bustler, and then uh, the denouement uh, with the uh, reveal of, as to what has been going on all this time. Um, so tonally, incredibly different from the, the first first story, and they make that's what makes these two stories uh, a really interesting pair. But again, Conan Doyle is drawing on his knowledge and experience and themes he's explored in, in previous stories, uh, notably uh, in the setting, yet again, of Dartmoor. Yes, this is his um, third foray uh, into using Dartmoor as a location in his fiction. He used it in uh, The Winning Shot, uh, which published in 1883, which we discussed in episode two, um, and also Silver Blaze uh, in 1892, the, the first of the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, 
Um, and so here we are um, putting Gerard into Dartmoor Prison, uh, which would feature in the background in his next use of, of Dartmoor and most famous use of Dartmoor, The Hound of the Baskervilles in, in 1901. Hmm. And Conan Doyle is um, demonstrating uh, a great interest and knowledge of, of the local Dartmoor history. Dartmoor Prison was established as a jail for prisoners of war during the Napoleonic era, and it became um, home first to uh, French soldiers captured um, during the conflict on the continent, but also uh, held some American prisoners of war during the War of 1812. And during the time that the the French were incarcerated in Dartmoor Prison, they developed their own rules and systems and their own uh, governance of the of their own behaviour as well. And some of that comes out in the in the opening of the story. Uh, yes, they, they the the prisoners were particularly tough um, on prisoners who informed on escape plots uh, to the to the British authorities. Um, and there's there's an, another wonderfully gothic moment when um, Gerard is describing the results uh, of of this sort of treachery. Hmm. That night there was a trial with a whispered accusation and a whispered defence a gagged prisoner and a judge whom none could see. In the morning, when they came for their man with papers for his release, there was not as much of him left as you could put upon your thumbnail. They were ingenious people, those prisoners, and they had their own way of managing. (laughs) (laughs) And when Gerard inevitably escapes from... Uh, Dartmoor prison he he does so in in dramatic fashion there's a there's a really interesting quite dark moment where he's actually betrayed by another another prisoner it's played for laughs um but um it then results in this quite vicious battle between Gerard and the soldier where um Gerard thinks he might have actually clubbed him to death the relationship between Gerard and and his cellmate Beaumont is is particularly intriguing as it it shows um, almost a, a regimental rivalry because mm. Beaumont is of the flying artillery, the horse artillery, who were the, the, the more dashing end of the artillerists. Mm. Uh, and Gerard, being Hussar, thinks this man thinks like he does. Yeah. And he'd say, yeah, you won't be long till you're back to your guns. And he doesn't understand that Beaumont doesn't want to get back to his guns. Beaumont <laughs> is quite happy. He's got a cushy billet here, <laughs> away from guns and fighting. And he doesn't want to escape. And Gerard is just incapable of understanding this. Yeah, that's true. And then Gerard finds himself on the moor, and then we get uh, a different treatment of the moor again from Conan Doyle. Yeah, he, he, each story he writes with the moor as a setting, almost as a character, he he, he changes its mood. Um, so in, in the winning shot, even though that's a, a, a gothic vampire story, the moor is depicted usually in quite a positive light. It's, mm. it's where people go picnicking. It's where they live. It's, it's a pleasant environment, apart from this Swedish vampire wandering about on it. <laughs> With his salad. Um, and and in, the, um, in, in Silver Blaze, it's a working environment where it, it, it's it very much shown the working life of, of, a, of a racing stables on the moor. Mm. Um, and in The Hound of the Baskervilles, after... Uh, the Gerard story, it's it's a purely gothic location that mm. is, is played for all it's worth. Um, but in in Gerard, you've got an element of that. It is this this wilderness where they've planted this prisoner of war establishment. Um, so the, the prisoners are, are almost in the middle of a sea. Mm. But it, it's a hostile environment, but it is also it, it, the, the beauty of its nature comes out in this story as well. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, well, Gerard certainly gets to see plenty of it since, uh, <laughs> since he then spends... Twice. <laughs> twice. He's, he spends uh, mo- much of this story running around not knowing where he's going. And the farcical element sort of comes to a head when he encounters this wonderful character, the Bristol Bustler, an English prize fighter. Um, although, of course, uh, Gerard doesn't realise he's an English prize fighter. He just thinks he's uh, an Englishman wearing some clothes that uh, Gerard would very much like um, so that he can disguise his appearance. But there's, there are a few things that are great about the moment with the Bristol Bustler. The first is Conan Doyle's fantastic use of dialect. In this case, you have the wonderful conversation between the Bustler and his trainer. Well, strike me, said the Bustler. I don't often break my training, but when it comes to giving up my clothes to a Frenchie, you couldn't hit a dint in a pat of butter. Well, it's more than I can swallow. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Um, and of course, Gerard's response. Be jabers, said I. I shall have no choice but to take them. And this is this fantastic little aside about Gerard, that Gerard learnt his English from a member of the Irish Legion, O'Brien, um, on a previous uh, campaign. Yes, it's, it's it's great to note that, that Conan Doyle, with his, his own Irish family background, has noticed the presence of this, this Irish Legion in, in Napoleon's army. Mm. The, 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 the Legion itself wasn't entirely Irish. It had... Uh, members from from all four corners of Europe um but it was uniformed in green um and was officered uh, by a, a number of irishmen um a lot of whom were veterans of the 1798 irish uprising who mm. had to leave ireland in a hurry but uh, there's also historical accuracy because um the second and third battalion of, of the Irish Legion were stationed at Burgos in Spain in 1810. So, Conan <laughs> Doyle has, has, you know, presumably spotted this and, oh, and, and again used it for historical and comic purpose at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And Conan Doyle's very good at giving these little incidental details that, that give you a real sense of time and place. One of the things that's going on around the time of this story is uh, um, Conan Doyle's interest in, in the Regency and how he actually starts a bit of his own um, Doylean verse of, uh, of Regency England. In the case of the Bristol Bustler, there's obviously the uh, interest in boxing, which permeates a lot of Conan Doyle's fiction around this time. In 1896, he wrote the novel Rodney Stone, and boxing is central to that. But you also get characters appearing in, in, in multiple stories. There's a casual reference to uh, the Bristol Bustler being backed by Lord Rufton. Uh, and Rufton uh, appears in The House of Templey and also in a short story called The End of Devil Hawker. And thinking back to the Bart in the previous story, we learn that the Bart is a member of uh, Watiers, which was a, uh, a private club set up by the Prince Regent and had uh, Beau Brummel as its uh, president. Beau Brummel makes a fleeting appearance in Rodney Stone. And in fact, um, Watiers is also referenced in The House of Templey and another Conan Doyle short story called... Uh, an impression of the Regency. So Conan Doyle is starting to build his own world of interlinked characters. And he comes back to this again uh, later in the Gerard stories in a, in a lovely little short story called The Brigadier in England. Yeah, and on the, on the subject of, of, of names and the Regency, uh, we, we actually have <clears throat> one, one part of this story where, where Gerard almost ends up playing the highwayman Yes. When he, find, when he finds a, a, a coach in trouble and thinks, oh, I might be able to, uh, to find some money or some clothes in this, in this coach. And, of course, there's a, a, lovely, a lovely woman in it and he 
pays her court and and so on. Um, but she is, it, it turns out, Lady Meredith, wife of Sir Charles Meredith. And mm. There could be two references with, with Sir Charles Meredith. And one is to George Meredith, who, as you pointed out, Mark, directed uh, Doyle towards Marbo's memoirs. Mm. But we've also got Sir Charles. And in the later Dartmoor story, The Hand of the Baskervilles, we have Sir Charles Baskerville. Mm. Um, but... but um, for all that there, there, there is a, a, a minor gothic key, Conan Doyle turns gothicism on its head in, in, in a way when mm. he, he talks about Gerard's nightmares when he's in Dartmoor prison. And, and then they're not nightmares of war or horror or being incarcerated. I had dreadful nightmares in which I fancied that the whole regiment needed shoeing or that my horses were all bloated with green fodder or that they were founded from bogland or that six squadrons were clubbed in the presence of the emperor. <laughs> Such is the stuff that Gerard's nightmares are made of. And that brings us back to the heart of these stories, which is the character of Gerard himself. And this story, you know, as a classic farce, has a wonderful farcical punchline in that um, we discover that in the coat that Gerard has acquired from this lady in the carriage is actually the letter that would see him freed from Dartmoor prison and released back uh, to his beloved France. Um, but he's been too busy running around Dartmoor for anybody to be able to catch him or indeed to read the letter. Um, and it's a great story. I think these two stories together really sum up the breadth and range and all there is to love about the Gerard stories. There is action and adventure. There is excitement. There is the wonderful moments of bleak horror, um, particularly in the first story through to that heightened note of fast right at the end. Um, and, you know, it's a shame in a way that Conan Doyle regarded them a bit like he did the Sherlock Holmes stories as well, that they were um, flights of fancy. Uh, you know, as Hesketh Pearson um, noted, you know, Doyle did not place these stories among his highest flights of fiction, no doubt because, like those of Holmes, they were the natural product of his fancy. He wrote them with relative ease and travail was his watchword. But the fact that they were easy to write is no reason to, to denigrate them. Um, you know, they are full of verve and uh, enthusiasm and character um, in a way that some of the other uh, writing of Conan Doyle around this time, I'm thinking particularly of things like Uncle Burnack, which is heavily laden with um, a sort of historical mission to tell a particular story. Um, Conan Doyle is freed from all of that in the Gerard stories. He can just have fun. Yeah, I, I personally think the, the Gerard stories are <clears throat> the, the, his best historical fiction because he is relaxed while he's writing them. He's, he's absorbed all this knowledge already uh, in writing the, the other Napoleonic stories. And, and it's, it is almost like he's, he's channeling hmm. the memoirs that he's read and, and, and really captures the period. Um, and he, he's not doing it in a, in a way which is, is laden with, with, with heavy mission. These stories are written for for entertainment, but they you know they they educate as well. He doesn't overwhelm you with it. So that brings us to the end of this episode. If you'd like to read the show notes, they're available at doingsofdoyle.com or you can follow us at Doings of Doyle on Twitter. And Paul, what have we got in store for next time? Next time we have a slice of Anglo-Indian Gothic in the shape of Uncle Jeremy's household. Great. And lots of Sherlockian connections in that one as well. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye.
Yes, and amid all of this uh, gothic horror, as the tension is really reaching fever pitch and it looks like our hero is uh, going to suffer a fate worse than death, um, no, that's not. He's, he's going to suffer, gonna suffer actually death. death. Going to actually <laughs> suffer death. Oh dear, there's the outtake. Absolutely. 